tonight we're going to be in Acts 27. Acts 27. And uh, hold your place there. And then uh, open up to, or mark a place at Romans chapter 1 and Philippians chapter 1. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read these, uh, these passages and then we'll get into the study tonight. Romans chapter 1, go to verse 9 if you would. Now I'm reading out of the King James Version just for this verse because translated into the Greek, I think it does a better job uh, with this word. It doesn't exist in the New King James Version, but when you look at the Greek word, it, uh, it holds this and I like it. So just bear with me as I read it. <clears throat> I'm reading the King James Version, verse 9. Paul writing to the church at Rome, which we've been studying on Sunday mornings. Paul writes, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request, if by any means now, at length, I might have, and this is where it changes, I might have, and just look at me instead of reading it, I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come unto you. Look at me again, a prosperous journey by the will of God that I might come unto you. So let's stop for a minute on the word prosperous. What does it mean? Successful? What do we think in our culture today when somebody's prosperous? Money. Come on. The church today looks at the word pros- prosperous or prosperity in an interesting light. It's wealth, yeah? Yeah, yeah. So, so Paul says, I want to come to you by the will of God. And he's saying, uh, to come to you that I might have a prosperous journey, a fruitful um, uh, a journey where I'm, I'm going to gain quite a bit, all right, with favor. And many of you currently are probably looking at your phones right now, looking for definitions. All right, now turn to Philippians chapter 1. And by the way, both of these, these epistles that we're reading were already written prior to what we're going to study tonight. They were already sent on ahead. Paul had already written these. And, uh, and so it's interesting to see what he had written and what he experiences. Philippians chapter 1, verse 12. But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of what? The gospel. So Paul goes through in Philippians a list of the struggles and the trials, but he says it's all worked uh, in such a way that it's turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. All the trials I've endured, all the things, the furtherance of the gospel. Um, and so Paul says, you know, whether Christ is preached in selfishness, I rejoice that he's being preached, and it's the furtherance of the gospel. All right, one more. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. By the way, 2 Corinthians chapter 11 was written prior to what we're going to study tonight. So all the things we're reading have already been written um, prior to the event we're about to study. Keep that in mind, okay? 2 Corinthians chapter 11, drop down to verse 25. Paul writing, he says, Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Here's an interesting one. Three times I was shipwrecked. shipwrecked. And he spent a night and a day in the deep. So he had to tread water for an entire night and an entire day before he was rescued or float on something in the deep. So how many times have you been shipwrecked? Shipwrecked. Three. Three. 
three times. He's praying for a prosperous journey to Rome, and we studied in chapter 23 that God said, I'm, you know, take heart, Paul, I'm going to have you testify for me, before, uh, for me in Rome. And so Paul, you know, he's going through some struggles. We saw where he blew it a few times, but he's on this journey to Rome, and, uh, and he is, he's going to, uh, to get there. And so we're going to take a look at the voyage that Paul undertakes, Acts chapter 27. Turn there with me if you would. Lord, we ask your blessing on the study of your word, and I pray, Holy Spirit, that you'd lead us into all truth. And Lord, I just pray that you'd minister deeply and powerfully and profound and practical ways that, Lord, we would be equipped to serve you in greater capacity and glorify you in the furtherance of the gospel. Lord, make our journey through this passage prosperous. Bless us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Does anyone ever equate struggle with prosperity? Although entrepreneurs would say the greater the risk, the greater the reward, right? But someone who is prosperous, you don't really equate that they're troubled or trialed or in the midst of a storm, do you? Okay, maybe I'm, I'm the only one awake here. Chapter 27, verse 1. And when it was decided that we should sail to Italy, they're heading to Rome, by the way, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to one named Julius, a centurion of the Augustan regiment. So he's a palace guard. He's, uh, we don't know how many soldiers are with him in this contingent, but there are other soldiers traveling. Each one will have a watch uh, where uh, they'll, they'll take watches and one will be chained to him. And, uh, and so there's, there's got to be a contingent of Roman soldiers and Julius is the centurion assigned to this and he's of the Augustan regiment, which is the palace guard. Uh, so they entering a ship at uh, Adramidium, we put to sea, meaning to sail along the coast of Asia. Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica, was with us. So when he's using the term us, he's including himself, the author, uh, and so we know the author to be Luke. So Luke, Aristarchus, and Paul are all traveling, and they're heading to Rome. Now, uh, many of you know our missionary, Tim Maddox, in Cyprus, and he'll share with me kind of the... the uh, weather patterns of Cyprus, and we'll talk periodically, and, you know, summers are there, unbearably hot, uh, there are no waves to speak of, it's like glass, there, there isn't winds, and on the Mediterranean, it's ideal to travel uh, on the Mediterranean Ocean, Mediterranean Sea, from March to August, mid-March to, to mid-August, uh, that's the time back then where everybody traveled, that's where uh, you could, you could um, travel without any incident. And you could still travel from, say, early September to mid-November, but it was dangerous. There was a potential for storm. But from, from um, latter November all the way through to the first part of March, it was so dangerous that, that they, they basically shut down the sea, the sea lanes. Nobody traveled. Now, the only time that anything would travel uh, of a capacity would be um, uh, a ship that would be carrying grain from Alexandria because that was the breadbasket of the Mediterranean. So if Claudius would need uh, grain, he could summon, and then he would put his signet on on the travel of these large vessels. They're about 300 feet in length. Uh, they were the largest in the Roman fleet. Uh, they were they were merchant ships, single mast. They would use a myriad of different sails, uh, but he would have to put his signet on it because if the ca- if the ship was destroyed in a time when it was, you know, 
shut down in the sea lanes to travel, but they still needed the grain. And if the captain survived the wrecking of the ship, he would be paid in full for the destruction of the cargo. So uh, it was almost an insurance policy by, by the emperor himself. So they, there was very few instances where you would travel in the mid of the Mediterranean. So what we see here with Paul and the other prisoners and Julius is that they're traveling along the coastal route. And the reason why you travel along the coastal route, uh, you know, obviously the, the shortest distance between two points is a straight line, but they're going up the coast. And the reason why they're going up the coast is because if the, if the, the winds become contrary and the storm becomes contrary, they just go into a port and, and they're safe. Um, but, but to be in the open sea and to make that passage from Alexandria to Rome um, in open sea in, in this portion of time between uh, the end of November and the first part of March was deadly. And so you can see them, they're traveling, uh, they entered a ship at Adramidium and they, they have to find a ship. And obviously Julius has authority to be able to summon the ship and to seek transport on these because they're, they're uh, mastered by the Roman Empire. And they, they meant to sail along the coast of Asia, and we find out again Aristarchus uh, from Thessalonica is with them. Verse 3, the next day we landed at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him liberty to go to his friends and receive care. And as you remember, Paul had been to, to Sidon, he had ministered there, he goes, and he's, he's been beaten up. Uh, we saw what happened to him in Jerusalem. Now he'd had close to two years in the palace. But to receive care means that he's probably got some wounds or something to to be tended to, maybe to find fresh supplies and be uh, supported by uh, his friends there in Sidon. And so Julius is an honorable man, and he lets Paul go and have liberty, uh, freedom to to go ashore and and connect with these folks, trusting him that he's going to return. Because if Paul is lost, uh, the burden falls upon Julius, and he's the one who will have to face the sentence of whatever is put upon Paul. Uh, Verse 4 When we had put to sea from there, we sailed under the shelter of Cyprus because the winds were contrary. So you have the windward and the leeward side of an island, and so they're sailing on the backside where the winds aren't contrary, where the storm is hitting the front portion of the island, and by the time it comes across the island, the storm dissipates, and it's safe to travel on the back portion of the island. And so this is, this is what he's doing. You're going to find, if you go out to Catalina, on one section of Catalina, it's, it's brutal and, and facing the, the ocean, and, and uh, you can see the shoreline, it's all beat up. And then when you see the mainland side, uh, it's all calm. And you can see this in Hawaii. There's beautiful places to go, and then there's just windswept areas that nobody wants to vacation to. And this is what he's describing, is they're under the shelter of Cyprus. They're letting the island protect them from the storm. And so what they're doing is they're traveling at a very precarious time, and they're finding little tricks to try to avoid all the contrary weather. And Paul is, uh, God is intending to get him to Rome. Verse 5, And when we had sailed over the sea, which is off Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra, the city of Lycia, a city of Lycia. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing to Italy, and he put us on board. Now this Alexandrian ship is a grain ship. We're going to find out later. Uh, this is the breadbasket of the Roman Empire coming from Alexandria itself, which is where the grain was grown. Uh, it's probably uh, been domineered or commandeered by Claudius, and um, it is coming from Alexandria. They've obviously come there through heavy seas to just get their foot on land for a while and rest as they've got to take the remaining journey uh, from from this portion on to, to Rome. 
And uh, so Julius, being of the palace guard and the signet and all the authority, gets them on board this ship. And, and just as the signet ring of Claudius has commanded this ship to travel when the sea lanes are closed, uh, Julius has the ability to get on board that ship through Roman authority. And so they, they put them on board. Verse 7, we had sailed slowly many days and arrived with difficulty off Sinaitis. The wind not permitting us to proceed, we sailed under the shelter of Crete off of Sol, uh, Salmone. Crete is another island. Michelle and I have had the privilege to go there. And they're doing the same thing. They're doing some trickery, just trying to avoid the contrary winds. And you can see it's starting to get real bad. Passing it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens near the city of uh, Lycia. So they leave one, go through contrary winds, and they get to a place called Fair Haven. And uh, Fair Haven is a tiny little seaport village. Um, it's a safe place to dock your ship. Uh, some of the studies that I did in looking at the city, it was a, a very small seaport, not much of a city to speak of. It wasn't a place that you wanted to vacation or spend a long portion of time. And certainly if you're a salty sailor uh, looking for a port of call, this isn't it. It's, it's not uh, the Philippine Subic Bay or Hong Kong. This is uh, a place nobody really wants to go to. And so Fair Haven is where they're there, and they're going to try to winter it out there in Fair Haven. Um, but the men are probably arguing and saying, you know, can't we get to a place that's a little more enjoyable? So they want to travel about 36 miles uh, along uh, the, the coast to try to get to um, another port. I think it's Phoenix. Let's see what it says here. Verse 9. Now, when much time had been spent and sailing was now dangerous because the fast was already over, um, Paul advised them, saying, Men, I perceive that this voyage will end with disaster and much loss not only of the cargo and the ship, but also our lives. Nevertheless, the centurion was more persuaded by the helmsman, the captain of the ship, and the owner of the ship than by the things spoken by Paul. And because the harbor was not suitable to winter in, the majority advised to set sail from there also, if by any means they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, opening toward the southwest and northwest and winter there. Now, Phoenix is a place that sailors would want to go to. They don't want to settle in Fair Havens, probably a large boat, and maybe the moorings aren't a place for it. Obviously, the centurion is heeding uh, the counsel of the ship owner, who's probably got this signet uh, approval of Claudius himself to travel. And, uh, and so, you know, the, uh, Julius is heeding what they're desiring to do. And you can see the authority that Julius carries because he has armed men on board this ship and he can override, in a sense, the captain's authority because he speaks for Rome. And he's obviously got some, some heavy authority that they would even counsel or seek his approval. Verse 13, when the south wind blew softly, supposing that they'd obtained their desire, putting out to sea, they sailed close by Crete. Now, uh, just to, to let you know, they're traveling about 36 miles, and they want to get, uh, they want to harbor uh, in Phoenix, which is a port uh, um, on the island of Crete. So they're traveling along the seacoast of Crete, even though the, the, they perceive, Paul perceives that there's going to be a storm. When they set sail, it was a beautiful, beautiful day. It was stunning and gorgeous, and uh, the south wind blew softly, and, and everyone just thought it was wonderful. A pleasurable day to sail. And uh, I would just say this, um, one of the things that we're going we're gonna to take a look at is, is um, especially when you look at storms in the scriptures, um, you look at the greatest storm of all, and that's with, with Noah, and, uh, and the idea of, of a judgmental storm where God flooded the earth, right? And there's storms of judgment. God's just going to rain down. You look at the book of Revelation and there's storms of judgment, hailstones the size of Volkswagens falling out of the sky. 
uh, it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be awful. Uh, these are storms of judgment. We saw that with, with Noah and, and the ark and the flooding of, of the earth. There are storms of correction. Uh, you can see this with Jonah. Jonah was told to go to Nineveh, and he didn't. He went the opposite direction. Uh, God brought a storm. Uh, they, they threw Jonah overboard. He got swallowed by a fish, a uh, whale shark more than likely. And, and uh, the old joke is you can't keep a good man down. So the whale shark threw him up, and there he was to call for repentance to these citizens. And there's storms of correction where you're going one way, God will bring a storm to correct your course. And uh, he'll, he'll shut everything down, and, and life will become a living hell. And God is more concerned with your soul being saved than he is with you endeavoring into your world of pleasure. Uh, as it says in, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, the end times will, folks, it'll, it'll be marked by folks that are lovers of pleasure and lovers of themselves. And, and we always look for, for you know, fair winds of pleasure and fair winds of self-indulgence. And, and we go to where we want to go and, and do what we want to do. And God will bring a storm of correction into our life and shut us down in relation to that. But then there's, there's also storms of instruction where, where God isn't necessarily correcting you, but he's going to instruct you. One of the perfect examples is the Lord Jesus said to the disciples, sail to the other side. I'll meet you on the other side. And he's up on a hill praying and, uh, and, and God brings this tempest and this storm, and they're, they're fearing for their lives. They've given up all hope of living, in a sense. They're frightened. And then all of a sudden, Jesus comes walking towards them on the water, and they're scared to death. And he says, peace be still. Uh, another account is he's in the boat, and they awaken him in the midst of the storm. And he, he says, peace be still. And it's so calm, this idea you could go water skiing. It was just, it went from a raging storm to absolute beauty. And we actually had the privilege to experience that on on the Sea of Galilee. We had left uh, the initial port to go across to Tiberias, and as we were traveling, we were in the midst of a storm with hail. Uh, the boat was just getting hammered, and when we got to the middle of the, uh, of the Sea of Galilee, it just became absolutely calm, and a rainbow came out. It was, it was biblical, in its, and, and I wasn't the one who said, peace be still, but it, it did it anyways, and I didn't attempt to try to walk on water either. And, and in the midst of it, this is what's fascinating to me. They're scared um, in the boat during this storm of instruction. And what happens is uh, when Jesus calms the ocean, they're, they're more frightened in the calm than they were in the midst of the storm. And they asked a question that the Lord was trying to always get them to ask, who is this man? And this is a storm of instruction that they would come to realize he is, he is God. He controls the elements. And, and this was a storm of instruction. God purposely put them in the middle of a mess so that they would come to realize the strength of the Lord. Right now, you could be... And listen, life is either going into a storm, being in the midst of a storm, or coming out of a storm. That's life. Now, some of those storms are self-imposed. They're storms of correction, and, and, and you deserve it. And you're in the middle of it. And the idea is repent and, and get out of it. And keep a short account with God and ask for forgiveness. And he's faithful and just to cleanse you of all, un, all unrighteousness. And, 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 and there's storms of instruction in the midst of it. You know that God's called you into it. And that's, that's why I tell people that are called into ministry that you're going to go into storms of instruction in the ministry. Finances will be tight. Uh, ministry people will leave the church. There'll be struggles in the midst of it. If you weren't called into the ministry and you forced your hand to go into the ministry, Don McClure used to say to me, 
Rob, make sure that the calling is sure. Because if you get into a mess and you're in a storm of instruction that the Lord has brought you into, you now not only have the one problem, which is the storm you're in the middle of, but you have a secondary problem that, that um, God never called you into it. So it, it's either a storm of correction, even in the midst of possibly a storm of instruction all at once. <laughs> And life's going to get hard. But if you're going to be in the ministry, you're going to be in any realm where you're stepping out in faith and you go into the midst. Because listen, truth demands uh, confrontation. It demands confrontation. Loving, but confrontation nevertheless. You will be in a storm if you're willing to stand for the gospel. If you're willing to be pro-life, if you're willing to, to defend marriage, if you're willing to do these things of the Lord, you will find yourself in a storm. And in the midst of that storm, it'll be instructive. Sometimes it'll be directed. God will direct you into the midst of that storm. And the one thing you're going to have to hold fast to is that God called me into this. And you rest upon his word. We'll take a look at that in a moment. But these are different types of storms. They're corrective. They're instructive. They're guided storms. Um, and they're storms of judgment. But in every area of life, we're either going into one, we're in the midst of one, or we're coming out of one. We just have to discern what kind of a storm it is and what God wants to do in the midst of it. Uh, where'd I leave off? Uh, here we go. Okay. South wind blows uh, softly, supposing they obtain their desire, putting out to sea, verse 13, they sail close by Crete. But watch what happens shortly after that. Is, as you go into these fair winds of, of, of pleasure and self-indulgence, uh, things start to rock your world. Verse 14, but not long after, a tempestuous headwind arose called a uh, uh, Eurocliden or Eurocliden. Uh, and these is a north nor'easter. This is this is a hurricane force storm, and it's one thing to be in a hurricane storm on board a luxury liner with, you know, uh, self-adjusting stabilizers to try to stave off, you know, motion sickness. But it's another to be in a three hundred foot wooden boat uh, with uh, very few nails in it, mostly put together with dowels and and uh, you know, lashings. And they have now, they, they, they're in the hornet's nest. This Eurocladin, this nor'easter, is, is hurricane force winds. And they are now in a mess. And they, they have lost all ability to control it. Um, and, and one thing to keep in mind is, is the ship is going to be driven by the storm. But the storm is going to be driven by God. And, and what did God promise Paul? He'd get him to Rome. He'd testify. So Paul's got a peace. But even in the midst of it, we also saw Paul waver in his faith. And here, not only did the Lord speak to him in previous chapters, as we saw, but now an angel of God uh, appears to Paul and, and reassures him in the midst of it. And I imagine Paul's praying, and this is where it all comes together. But they hit this Eurocled in. And so when the ship was caught and could not head into the wind, we let her drive. Now that... Um, you know, that's awful. Uh, Lauren Sunderland could probably give some great insight into this. I, I, he's back there. He's a shipmate, and uh, his, his son was the youngest uh, person to circumnavigate the globe uh, in a sailboat all alone. Um, and you've been in all kinds of storms, yeah? And your daughter was in one, right? World, world famous for that storm. <laughs> Fascinatingly enough, this, this storm is so brutal and so heavy, but this is, this is what's so cool about this passage. In Greek literature, 
This is the most detailed account of, of a shipping storm in all of Greek literature. Uh, the, the accounts of this and, and, and Luke's detail of this, nothing even rivals it in all of Greek literature. It's fascinating to read it. He spends great time and detail on this. And so he describes it. It's a Eurocladin, this nor'easter, this, this hurricane force. The ship is caught. It can't head into the wind. And so they let her drive. Lawrence, tell everybody what it means to let her drive. Louder. You're at the mercy of the storm. The, the sails are worthless, correct? So you're basically, okay, we have no ability to control this any longer. Doesn't that sound interesting in life? You have been trying to figure out this storm, and you have been trying to rob Peter to pay Paul, and you've been running the credit cards, and you've been moving this over to there and trying to keep that plate spinning in this one, and then all of a sudden, there's just nothing left, and, and you, you're, you're being driven by your circumstances. You, you don't even have a hand in it anymore. You, you're, you're driven. Uh, everything starts to be you know, made known, and the secrets you're trying to keep, everything comes right to the surface, and you're being driven by the storm of correction. You're being driven by the storm of instruction. Whatever it is, it's out of your hands. You don't even know how you got there. You don't even know who's in control or who the players are. You're, you have zero ability to control this mess. And, uh, and I, I can take situations in life to describe that where we're all in a place where we just let it drive. And it, and it starts to carry us. Verse 16, running under the shelter of an island called Clauda, we secured the skiff with difficulty. It was, a, it was the boat that they, they traversed back and forth between uh, their, their, their mooring position and land and, and bring supplies if they didn't have a port that they were able to do this. Um, and so they, they pull the skiff in, which was trailing behind, and they don't want to lose it in the storm. So they secured on board the ship and... Uh, and, and they did it with difficulty. This thing is just getting bounced everywhere. And you, I don't know if you've ever been in a storm like this. My, my father described uh, being in uh, the North Atlantic uh, on board a frigate. Um, it was actually, yeah, it was, it was a frigate and he was the commanding officer. And my great uncle, whom I'm named after, my dad was named after, uh, he was a, retired as a commander in the reserves. Um, and uh, he had served in World War I and World War II. And my father wanted to honor him. Uh, he was an amazing man. He was a gentleman. He was an executive for Travelers Insurance Company. He was a bachelor his whole life. Uh, he wore the finest clothing you can imagine, and and uh, he was a, a gentleman through and through. And um, my my dad brought him on board the ship to be able to enjoy passage. Uh, got approval for it, uh, and and that uh, my my great uncle was still in the reserves. He was able to enjoy this passage. Well, they hit a, a massive storm in the North Atlantic, and uh, this little frigate is just getting bounced all over the place like a ping pong ball, just getting bounced all over the place. And my dad, you know, he's, he's, he's seasoned. He's been on board this ship for a, a long period of time. He's handling it. He's at the helm. And my great uncle is, is, hadn't gotten his sea legs back. He's been off for a while. And this storm is just killing him. And my dad, who had absolute respect for my great uncle, was embarrassed because he could see that my great uncle was starting to get a little peaked and, and knew that it wasn't going to be good. And, uh, and next thing he knows, my great uncle goes uh, into the head, the restroom, and you just hear wretched sounds, just, rah, 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 you know, coughing up a lung or something. It's just nothing left in there. And, 
And uh, my dad doesn't know what he's, how he's to react because such respect for my great uncle, such a gentleman. What do you say to a man that is just, you know, wretched in the, in the bathroom? And, and how do you, how, it's pink elephant, elephant in the room. My great uncle comes out. My great uncle being a gentleman, he says to my father, you know, I don't remember having eaten that. <laughs> I just thought it was funny. I've been in a storm like this. I, I imagine uh, it wasn't nearly as bad, and, and I was obviously in, in a boat that could handle it. I could go through a story about that, but we don't, we don't have that kind of time. And so with great difficulty, they, they bring this skiff aboard. And look at verse 17. When they had taken it on board, they used cables to undergird the ship, fearing lest they should run aground on the Sirtis sands. So what they did is they, they took, they took uh, rope, um, and they, they threw it over the bow of the ship, and they, they dragged it back, and they brought it to the center of the ship. They brought it in. They wenched it tight to hold it together like a package. And, and then they brought another rope back, and they wenched it. And you think to yourself, uh, we are in a lot of trouble if this rope is what's holding this box of matches together. And they're, they're cinching it down, and they're trying to keep this boat together. And the more that it's creaking and bending, and you know the dowels are snapping, the nails are coming out, it's not steel, it's not welded, the hull is being thrashed. The larger the ship, the more punishing it is. Uh, and, and they're watching this ship just get thrashed. So they're trying to hold it together with these ropes. At this point, you know that it's, it's, it's chaotic. You know that it's catastrophic. Something desperate uh, is happening, and they're scared. And they also realized that they're probably going to run aground on the sands of Sirtis. So they struck sail and were so driven. Uh, they just said, look, we can't hit here. We're being driven by the storm. Let's at least try to change direction, put up the sails to the best of our ability. But putting up the sails in a storm like that, you're going to wreck your mast. You're going to destroy your sails. They'll tear. These storms are so overwhelming. The winds are so heavy that they're, they're taking an enormous risk by doing this. Verse 18, and because we are exceedingly tempest-tossed, uh, not just tempest-tossed, but exceedingly tempest-tossed, the next day they lightened the ship. And on the third day, we threw the ship's tackle overboard with our own hands. So everything of value on board the ship, they're throwing it over because the more weight in the ship and the water coming on board, they don't have a pumping system and they're having to bail. And, and the more weight in the ship, the lower it is in the water. They've got to get rid of anything that's heavy, just trying to lighten the load to keep this thing uh, above the water. They're doing emergency measures to try to keep this boat up. And so they're throwing over critical aspects of the ship and, and tackle. And, uh, and then look at verse 20. Now, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, no small tempest beat on us all. And all hope that we would be saved was finally given up. They finally, their spirits were broken. They just realized we're dead. We haven't seen stars. We don't know where we are. We haven't seen, we haven't seen sun. We haven't seen stars. This storm is so raging, so overwhelming. We don't know where we are. And we're not going to live. It's that simple. And, and there are times where you just realize you have tried every trick in the book to try to, to keep it together. And you realize it's not going to happen. We're all going to die. And, and this is the concerted feel throughout the entirety of the ship that everyone, all hope was given up. And they were all realizing we're going to die. Save but for one man on the boat. Uh, imagine he probably struggled. He probably got caught up in all the, the chaos of it all and was trying to help. And he was probably in the midst of it. And this isn't Paul's first rodeo. How many shipwrecks had he been in prior to this? Three. 
I tell you, this guy's got some experience. He, he knows what he's talking about, right? And he's been in three shipwrecks. And one of them, he spent a night and a day in the deep. So this, this, he's not just some Jewish rabbi who doesn't know what he's talking about. And he knows how to keep this ship together. And he's been through this before. And even he's looking at it going, we're, we're in a world of hurt. Uh, there's no keeping this ship together. We're, we're at, at critical mass. And, uh, and so all hope, as it says, all hope that we would be saved was finally given up. But verse 21, but, long, but after a long abstinence from food, and then really what had happened is they were so seasick that they couldn't eat. And many of them hadn't eaten. They were all weak. Uh, they were struggling. And they were exhausted. And in the midst of this, where first of all, they'd given up all hope of living, and they're, they're famished. This is what Paul does. He stands in the midst of them and he says, men, I told you so. (laughs) Don't you just love people like that? I told you. And you can imagine just this little small rabbi, I'm telling you, I told you so. You didn't listen to me. You could have, you could have been in Fairhaven, but no, we had to go to Phoenix. You wanted to go to Phoenix in the summertime. What are you crazy? Look at you. You're Meshuggah. You should have listened to me. You shouldn't have sailed from Crete and incurred this disaster and loss. Verse 22. And now I urge you to take heart. First, he just, he's got to get that in. He's just got to get that in. Told you. <laughs> okay. All right. Enough. Anyways, anywho, take lay. Listen up. Listen up. I know you're all famished and you're exhausted. And everybody's going to die. <laughs> told you so. I mean, I told you, didn't I? Anyways, where were we? Listen. I just, I'm urging you guys. You got to pay attention to me. I'm urging you. And he's got this smile probably from ear to ear. I'm just urging you. You got to take heart. Take heart. I I just, I want to share with you something that's going to make your day. And he says, uh, there will be no loss of life among you. I mean, they're looking at him. First of all, I told you so. And now there's not going to be any loss of life among us. But only of the ship. We're going to lose this ship, but you're all going to live. And, and excuse me, how do you know this? Uh, really fascinating that you're telling us this. The entire ship is going to be destroyed and we're all going to live. Yes, yes. And how so, Paul? Verse 23, for there stood with me this night an angel of the God, the only God, the true God. This idea that, that he is an angel of the only God. That's the, the lineup in the Greek. Uh, the angel of the only God. The angel of the only God. Because you're talking about a polytheistic culture, and, and Paul is taking this opportunity to testify of the one true God, to whom I belong and to whom I serve. Two things to keep in mind. Paul knows that this is a storm of direction, and Paul knows this because he's resting in the simple fact that this is the God to whom I, I belong, and this is the God to whom I serve. And I'm here because I'm serving him. I'm in a storm of direction, and I know where I'm going. And I knew I was going to get there safe. I didn't know if you guys would be included. But I got to tell you something. The good news is you all get to come with me. Oh, this ship isn't coming. And everything that you've put hope in, you see, you all signed up for this winter voyage in a time when the sea lanes are closed because you were banking on the the commodity and the high price of the grain on board this ship. Your hope was in the cash that you were going to receive in Rome and the party you were going to have. But you're going to throw away all of your hope and you're going to hope in the only thing that you should have hoped in and that's the Lord. What do you hope in? 
Really, really, when, when do you give up all hope is, is when, when you have lost all your financial, your visible assets to help with the situation. And there's nothing more beneficial to a Christian than to be reduced to nothing. And nothing that makes a saint more practical and, and more strengthened than going through a season where, where a storm is so vicious it takes away all of your visible assets. And there, Paul is testifying on board a ship that you've given up all hope, and I'm here to give you hope. Your hope is going to go overboard, and this ship is going to be destroyed of which you've placed hope in, and you've done everything to keep it together. But God is going to see you safely to the shore. Those are big words from a little man. Those are big words from a little man. But you know what's fascinating? In the midst of a storm... The hour reveals the measure of the man. And, and we've, you know, with Tea Party and the derogatory terms we've heard, you might shut down in this expression, but I, I, I love it. Our culture is trying to destroy it, but Christians are like tea bags. We don't know what's in them until they're put into hot water. And, and the hour reveals the measure of the man. And what kind of a storm are you going into? Or what kind of a storm are you in? Or what kind of a storm have you just come out of? What kind of a man or a woman are you? Are you a man and a, or a woman of faith? Has it been strengthened? Have you been corrected? The Lord chastens those he loves. God instructs his children. He's directing you. When you stand for the Lord and you're faithful, you're going to be in the midst of a storm, guaranteed. If you're not in a storm and you're in fair haven, you're not going anywhere. And you're not doing anything. And you're probably irritated with the church that is doing something and going somewhere. You just want to be left alone. And, and, and you don't want any messages that push you or challenge you or direct you. you. You just want a haven in a little rest spot. And all you want is your retirement. And you just want to call it quits. And I like going to church, but can't you just stop with the... No. No. Storms are directive. Be in the middle of it. It's what makes you who you are. It's, it's, it's that hour that reveals the measure of that man or that woman. This is what God wants to do. This is life. Why are you shocked by it? That's why Paul would write, but I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. He wrote to the church in Rome. He wrote to them. He says, I'm on my way. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayer. I'm coming to see you. And I want you to know, making request if by any means now at length that I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come to you. Boy, is this prosperous. What kind of a God is he? The ship is destroyed. Everyone's scared to death and all of our resources are gone. Where's the money? I put my life on the line. The, the, the owner of the ship is looking. What do you mean prosperous? My bank account is empty. I've lost everything. I don't even know I'm going to live. I've given up all hope of living. Oh, it's the hour. It's that hour that reveals the measure of a man or a woman. Because a faith not tested isn't a faith worth having. We despise storms. I'd rather spend time in Fair Haven than go to Phoenix.
We hate confrontation. The church hates it. We just want to be a twig on the bank of a mighty river and just go with the flow. Why do we have to always challenge the culture? Why do we have to be involved in these things? Why do we have to always talk about pro-life and, and babies being killed and marriage? And Why do we have to do that? Because that's your calling. It's directed. You're supposed to be in the storm. And God's going to send you in front of governmental authorities to testify. And do you think that they're going to give you an audience at City Hall because you just want to go? You got to earn it. You got to go through fire. You know how hard the election was? Ministry's easy compared to running for office. I'm trying to get pastors to grasp that. Why does the world fight so heavily to hinder people from testifying in Rome? Why? Get into the storm. Do it. And you know what? You, 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 there's times where you're in the midst of it and you think, what have I done? You just get tired of it. November is going to be my fourth election in two years. I am dreading it. Dreading it. I, I don't even want to open the acorn every week. I have no idea what someone's written. I don't, I don't want to be written about. You go to weddings and the person bends your ear for 40 minutes while you're at a wedding because they want to talk about some issue. Right? But what you realize is that's a directed storm. I have the privilege to speak into that person's life. I'm asked to be on an interfaith council, sharing with the staff the questions of the interfaith council. I'm reading those questions and I'm stunned. And yet, it's a storm. I know there will be conflict. I know there will be trial. And you do it with wisdom. You do it with tact. You're as gentle as a lamb, shrewd as a snake, as a serpent. You just, you got to navigate. And, you, and, and you're not going to navigate. You're going to be driven by the Lord. And the only way that you're going to survive it is to cling to what God wants to do because he'll take you to where you need to be. He'll put you in front of Caesar. Stay in the storm. And so, Paul says, verse 25, Therefore take heart, men, for I believe God that it will be just as it was told me. However, we must run aground on a certain island. And now when the fourteenth night had come, and we were driven up and down the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors sensed that they were drawing near some land. They could hear the waves crashing, and they knew something was happening. We're in trouble. Here it comes. We're being driven. We're going to rush right into these rocks. We can hear the rocks in the distance, but the storm is so heavy there's no visibility. Verse 28, the only way that they could get any bearing on where they were is they would drop a, a, a rope with a big weight on the bottom of it with knots at fathoms, certain fathoms, and they would drop it down, and when it would hit the ground, they'd bring it back up, and they would measure how deep it was. And they'd drop it again, and they'd realize it's getting shallower, and they drop it again, it's getting shallower, and they're realizing they're coming into an island, and they're in trouble. And so they start to take these fathom readings. They took soundings, and found it to be 20 fathoms. And when they had gone a little farther, they took soundings again and found it to be 15 fathoms. Luke is writing this in great detail. I mean, it's a fascinating story. 
Then fearing lest we should run aground on the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. They're trying to stop themselves from hitting the rock and they want to at least wait for the sun to rise so they can see what they're going to hit. So they put four anchors in the back. Let's stop there for a minute. I've got 16 minutes. Four anchors. Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1. First Timothy chapter 1, look at verse 19. Everyone say, having faith. And everyone say, and a good conscience, which some have suffered shipwreck, or which some have rejected concerning the faith and have suffered shipwreck. So two of those anchors in our life, two of those anchors in our life are faith and a good conscience. You know what's tough in a storm of correction is that we're guilty of what we did. And when you're guilty, it's hard to look somebody in the eye. Right? A good conscience is healthy for a Christian. You never have to remember what you said if you tell the truth. And faith, I love the definition I heard from Dr. Beloyne about faith. Faith is having great need and taking great risk. And and Jesus marveled at the faith of so many Gentiles, at the consternation of of the disciples, the centurion to be one of them. These are people that would take great faith. The woman who touched the hem of his garment, the woman who had the demon-possessed daughter, uh, Jarius' daughter. Uh, This is faith. Faith and good conscience are anchors that hold fast in the midst of a storm. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 6. Let's look at two more anchors. Hebrews chapter 6. If you reject the faith, you'll suffer shipwreck. You know, it's oftentimes in the midst of a trial, we give up on God. Why did you take my loved one? (laughs) Good luck with that fight. We studied Romans 8.28, didn't we? All things work together for good. Hebrews 6, look at verse 18. That by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation, who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, which enters the presence behind the veil. Two things that we have as an anchor, God's word, he cannot lie, and hope. Hope is an anchor of the soul. Hope is, in, is believing in things you can't see. You only have hope if, you, if, you, if, you, if, you, if the grain's still on board. You only have hope if there's money in the bank. You know what? It's not until you're at the end of yourself that you really realize what hope is. Alan Redpath said, God is in the business of reducing man to a minimum that he might pour in his maximum. God empties us to fill us. You're in a storm. Throw all that crap overboard. That's what it is. It's dung. Paul said it, I didn't. It's dung. What do you hope in? And in the midst of the storm, do you take him at his word? You're going to get to Rome. 
Do you trust him? Let's go back to the text and close our service tonight. There's always going to be somebody in the midst of your trial that's going to give you an escape. And Satan wants you to take that escape. You know what? You've been in this storm 14 days, Tom. You deserve a little me time. And you know that sin that easily besets you. God will forgive you. Just dig in. It's okay. I mean, come on, Gene. It's been a hard week. The family's acting up. I mean, it's a storm. You deserve a little me time. That voice, right? He's always, he's always speaking us into the skiff so he can destroy us as he takes us away from the ship. He loves to isolate and then destroy. And what's the skiff? A storm in your family? But you got that lifeboat at the office, the pretty voice, the drugs in the cabinet. There's nobody in this room that understands the skiff more than me. That's why God put me in this spot. And you know what? It's, there's no return on investment in the skiff. There's nothing. God wants to do a work in your life. He's going to take you through a trial. Just dig in and go for it. There are days where I just, I'm sick of the storms. Honestly, I am. I'm sick of the storms. I know what the skiff is like. It's worse than the storm. Trust me. And you know what happens when you get in the skiff? Your family dies. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship when they had let down the skiff into the sea under the pretense of putting out anchors from the prow, it wasn't necessary. Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. So Paul is now the captain of the ship. He looks at the owner. He looks at the helmsman. He says, look, you got to cut that skiff or we're all going to die. Julius, I believe, is going to be in heaven. I believe that man came to faith. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes in the skiff and let it fall off. The owner of the ship couldn't get in. The helmsman couldn't get in. They just said, let it go. You can imagine him coming up with that double-edged sword, that broadsword, and they're just watching it go out. Nobody's cheating here. Stay on the ship. My job as a pastor, and I was telling this to Rich Siskowski, whose wife Ruth just died, I said, God showed me my second year in the ministry, my job is to get these people who are with me on board Calvary Chapel, God speak, from point A to point B. And Ruth just got home safe. We all got to get there together. Verse 33, as the day was about to dawn, Paul implored them to all take food, saying, today is the 14th day. You've waited and continued without food and have eaten nothing. Paul's just practical. I urge you to take some nourishment, for this is for your survival. You're going to need strength to get through this ocean, since not a hair will fall from the head of any of you. And when you have... When he had said these things, he took the bread. He led by example. He took the bread. He, 
and he, and he gave thanks to God in the presence of them all. And then he broke it and he began to eat. He says, look, see, we can eat. I know we're all sick, but just eat. It'll be good for you. Then they were all encouraged and they all took food themselves watching Paul. And in all were 276 persons on the ship. And so when they had eaten enough, they lingered, excuse me, <laughs> they lightened the ship. And what did they do? They threw out the wheat into the sea. That's all of their wealth just went into the deep blue sea. Ruined. I lost my business. And you gained your soul. The greatest tragedies in our life has always been the greatest blessings. The storms have always brought the greatest strength. It's in the hour of a trial that the measure of a man or a woman is revealed. When it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they observed a bay with a beach into which they planned to run the ship if possible. And they let go of the anchor and let them into the sea. And meanwhile, loosing the rudder ropes, they hoisted the mainsail to the wind and made for shore. They tried to hoist it, go! And they're hoping that the wind's going to blow them right into the into this sandy beach. And it doesn't quite go that way. Verse 41, but striking a place where two seas met, they ran the ship aground and the prow stuck fast and remained immovable. So the prow goes, boom, hits and it sticks. And these two seas are raging. It's where two currents are hitting and just starts twisting this thing. Ping, ping, ping. And it just shatters it like Jenga. Just and all the, and, and you know what's fascinating about it? Is it all starts to rip. First of all, Jews don't know how to swim. Maybe Paul had learned as a night and day in the deep, but everyone needs a board to float on. And God made life preservers for everyone. Just, there you go. Grab something. And being broke up by the violence of the waves and the soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners lest any of them should swim away and escape because the, their punishment would be put on them if these prisoners escaped. But the centurion, wanting to save Paul, kept them from their purpose and commanded that those who could swim should jump overboard first and get to land and the rest, some on board, some on parts of the ship. And so it was that they all escaped safely to land. They made it. Every single person made it. And Julius was the guy. And Paul said in Philippians, but I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. You think, Lord, you told me I was going to go to Rome, and now I'm on Malta. And this is now my fourth shipwreck. Couldn't we have had a nice winter in Fairhaven? I don't, I don't understand why it has to be storm after storm until you get to chapter 28. And we're going to read it briefly and close with this tonight. Turn to chapter 20. I'm just going to read it through and let this, the text speak for itself. Verse 1, And now when they had escaped, they found out that the island was called Malta. Michelle and I have been there. It was fascinating. And the natives showed us unusual kindness, for they had kindled a fire and made us all welcome because of the rain that was falling and because of the cold. But when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on Paul's hand. And so when the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer, whom though he had escaped the sea, yet justice has not allowed the guy to live. Sucks to be him. And Paul's just looking at this viper dangling from his arm. He just shakes it. Watch what happens. He shakes it off the creature and he puts it into the fire and he suffered no harm. And all of them are going, whoa. 
However, they were expecting that he would swell up and suddenly fall down dead. But after they had looked for a long time and saw no harm come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. And the Lord just said, yeah, viper bite him. And he holds back the venom. And everyone goes, he's a god. No, he serves God. And in that region, there was an estate of a leading citizen of the island. Right away, he goes to the governmental authority, which is the area that God's called us to reach, whose name was Publius, who received us and entertained us courteously for three days. And it happened that the father of Publius lay sick of a fever and dysentery. He had diarrhea. He was ill, probably some sort of fever, uh, some sort of issue, and, and he's dying. Paul went into him and prayed and then laid his hands on him and healed him. And so when this was done, the rest of those on the island who had diseases also came and were healed. And they also honored us in many ways. And when we departed, they provided such things as were necessary. A great revival happened on the island. And as Paul said in Philippians, I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. Do you think it was a prosperous trip? They lost all their wheat. Yeah, but the... But the island of Malta got saved. You're, you're not on this earth for a comfortable ride. We're to confront evil. We're to engage in the storm. Instructive, directive, corrective. All of them. And that's our job. Amen?